0: I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. With me is Derek Vaughan, who's the Labour Member of the European Parliament, representing the whole of Wales. Uh, Hello, uh, Derek. Tell me a bit about your political background and how you eventually became a member of uh, the European Parliament. Mm.
1: I'm not sure if I'm quite sad, but I was interested in politics when I was quite a young boy. Uh, I come from quite a a famous village called Abavan in uh, in Merthyr. Uh, And even at a young age, I could see things around me which didn't seem right, but it was... Uh, unemployment, miners coughing up lumps of coal and not getting compensation. I think uh, you know people say that you, you are affected uh, by by your environment, uh, and I certainly uh, was. You know, at, I, I I could see you know old men and not so old men who had been down the, the pit in Ruthervale for for many years and uh, were coughing up lumps of coal, like when being told, despite this obvious illness, they weren't entitled to any uh, any compensation. Was always an employment in Mürtha as there was uh, in the valleys, but I think it. I was aware of all these things, but I think it was probably the the more personal things. I and it's I don't talk about it very often, but it was. I think probably the case of my my grandmother. I was uh, an old lady, and she lived in Penderbach, uh, two villages away from from Abervang. and I remember, um, and I was in my late teens. Go to going to the cricket club which was very, very nearby, and uh, I'd play cricket there, and on a Sunday night we'd have a we'd have a disco, which is the, the highlight of the week, uh, and, I, and I would go there, and I would stay in my grandmother's on a Sunday night, and I would go back there, and there was no inside toilet and no bathroom, you know, so, my, so it was bad enough for me as, a, as a, somebody in their late teens on a Sunday night I to go to the, the toilet outside on a cold winter's night, but I just uh, imagined what it was going to be like for my grandmother, you know, an old lady... Uh, not having any of those facilities, that, you know, as I said, not not that long ago, uh, really. So it was the the personal things like that which just made me feel that, that there's something wrong. with Society we must be able to to do things in a, in, a, in a in a different way. And I probably from my early teens on, when I was start to watch the news, I, uh, from my point of view, I thought it was only the Labour Party who was talking about some of these issues, and it was only the Labour Party who would be in a position to to change. These things, Labour Party has never been perfect, and I, and I have uh, uh, as many disagreements then as I do now with the, the Labour Party and the leadership sometimes, but I, I felt then as I do now that it was only the Labour Party who was going to be a vehicle to change some of these things and make, things li- to make li- life better for people like my, my grandmother at that time. I joined the Labour Party when I was 18. I became a councillor in my early 20s, uh, leader of Neath Council then leader of the Welsh Local Government Association, and then went to the European Parliament in 2009. And I think I became interested in European politics when I went to Swansea University, a long time ago Uh, now, obviously. But when I went there, I did politics, and one of the courses I did was the politics of the European community, as it was known at at the time. And from that stage, it became clear to me why we had a European community or European union, and essentially, it was to stop the powers of Europe going to war again. You know, Europe went to war every 30, 40 years. Millions of, of young, mainly working class boys were slaughtered every 30 to 40 years. And after the Second World War, the founding fathers said, this is this has to stop. And they thought the best way to stop it was to use economic means for political ends. So in other words, they said, if we draw the economies of Europe closer and closer together, so they become interdependent, then we won't ever fight again over land and resources. And that's essentially why we've got the European Union. And I think that's been its biggest biggest success. I think the you know the biggest biggest success of the European Union is there's been no wars. In fact, it's probably the greatest peace project uh, there's ever been. So that's why I'm very wary of right wing politicians who want to go back to the bad old days when nations were fighting each other. But how did we get from a position,
0: Derek, where that sort of geopolitical approach towards um, European politics? was overtaken by the kind of view that was so often expressed during a referendum campaign that the European Union is nothing more than a bureaucratic entity where you've got people on the gravy train and it's not actually doing much for anyone.
1: Mm. But I I think there's two elements to that. One uh, is that a lot of the EU legislation has been about uh, uh, enhancing and protecting the the single market. So although some people uh, see uh, EU laws on workers' rights and uh, the environment and consumers' rights as interference in in our own laws, you have to have common rules and common laws across the single market. Otherwise, the single market doesn't function. But some people have seen that as as interference, and I I, I disagree uh, with that. I think the other element is, you know, the the eu and the european parliament uh, in particular seems far away from people's everyday lives and, and it is far away you know we uh, we meet in brussels or strasbourg every week and uh, and we're not always in wales i am back in wales every weekend and i try and get around as much as as possible but uh, yeah eu politicians are seen as a bit remote on occasions and i think what uh, we've failed to do uh, in the past is to try and uh, link up the eu more with ordinary people's lives you know so i think um, all politicians uh, of all parties, including my own, including myself, maybe should have been making the case much better than we did over many years to explain to people the impact on the day-to-day lives of the European Union, how uh, EU laws are actually making it better for them in work, health and safety laws, you know, um, uh, sh- shorter working weeks, um, the right to, to lunch breaks and, and tea breaks. Um, equal rights for part-time workers etc we weren't explaining that's EU laws we weren't explaining that most of our consumer laws come from the EU uh, we weren't explaining that most of our laws protecting the environment came f- come from the European Union so we should be, be much better than that and because we weren't good at it I, I think this, this gap did appear uh, between uh, uh, people on the ground and the European Union Perhaps there's another element to it as well, uh,
0: Derek, because I remember in the run-up to the referendum, I read a book by Dennis McShane, who's a former Mm -hmm. Europe minister, uh, called Brexit, in which he was predicting that there would be a vote to leave the EU. And he made a lot of the fact that uh, over a long period, there had been a great number of stories written Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, newspapers that are read by many people in uh, the UK, which were very... Critical uh, and undermining of the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, how big an influence do you think that yeah. sort of thing played? I, I think
1: it had a big influence. Uh, when people ask me to explain the result in the referendum, the, the, the two things I, I start with is the first thing I said and that you know, the pro-Europeans didn't make the case. Uh, but the second thing is, you know, for 10, 15 years, people read negative stories about the, the European Union. You, know, you could pick up almost a, any tabloid any day of the week and it'd be some negative story. Uh, most of it was nonsense. And it's absolute nonsense. You'd read on there that the EU was going to ban jam jars or the EU was going to ban high high heels, for example. And it's all nonsense. What would tend to happen there is some legislation will be going through the European Parliament. Some obscure uh, MEP from a, a small party, no party would put down an amendment to say something like that. And the press would pick it up, but it had never had any any chance of becoming law or legislation. But of course, you see the headlines uh, the next day. And of course, we had some right wing politicians who actually made a name uh, by disparaging the European Union. Boris Johnson, for for example. Um, was a journalist based uh, in in Brussels Uh, and and his job was to send back to his newspaper day after day anti-EU stories and he made up some of these myths and when he was in Brussels apparently he was quite proud of the the myths he was making up and sending back to London every day so I have no doubt that um, uh, because people read that type of thing day after day for 10, 15 years some of it uh, must have sunk in so I think uh, that was uh, uh, partly to blame for the result. The referendum one of the things that i
0: think has uh, shocked a lot of people and i think it certainly shocked me uh, was the way in which the whole tone of the debate became so bitter and there was a lot of nastiness and i've spoken to politicians who said that they were getting serious abuse uh, on the doorstep uh, when they were canvassing in favor of a remain vote for example mm. in a way that they'd never come across mm. before when they'd been campaigning for their election or, or whatever Why do you think it became so nasty and, in a
1: sense, has remained so ever since the results of the referendum? I I think uh, it it did get nasty, particularly, I think, in the the last couple of weeks of the the campaign. I think the turning point was a about two or three weeks to go in the campaign when the, the Leave campaign uh, recognising they were losing the economic arguments because it's very difficult to find anybody uh, who was saying that leaving the EU would be good for the, uh, the economy, apart from the guy in Cardiff University, Patrick Minford, who thinks it's going to be wonderful to have a total free market and no tariffs, uh, no workers' rights, etc. But apart from one or two, uh, nobody was saying even the EU would be econ- economically good for us. So they lost the economic argument, so they, they had to change it to something else and they changed it to immigration. And in the last two weeks, all this, this nasty immigration stuff, all all these racist, racist comments uh, came to the fore. And it seems to me that the British society and all society, there's an element of racism under the table but we've always managed to keep a, a lid on it but in that last two or three weeks of the campaign I think the lid was lifted off by the leave campaign uh, focused very much on uh, on immigration and that allowed people I think to uh, to say things which they wouldn't have said uh, in the past so when we were knocking uh, doors uh, even in places which didn't uh, have an ethnic minority uh, uh, population. So, for example, you've got some of the South Wales valleys and Blaina Gwent. It's got an ethnic minority population of one percent or less. But still, you, you're racist comments. You still you you your, uh, immigration as the reason why people uh, were going to vote to leave the, the the European Union. So, I, I think it's it's I don't know, it's easy to, easy for me to, to blame the Leave campaign. But I think that's that's what did in the last two or three weeks. of The campaign they felt they were losing, and they unleashed. This, uh, these, this, this, this racist campaign based on immigration, and unfortunately, that had consequences. The consequences, I, I think, are still with us. You know, we we viewed already, uh, not just anecdotal evidence uh, from people who've uh, who faced racial abuse, but when you look at the official figures now, the, the number of hate crimes has increased since the referendum. We see the number of uh, EU citizens uh, uh, leaving the the UK as, as increasing, and some are key workers, you in know, in our health service, uh, for example. And we, uh, and on the other side, we see the number of, of EU citizens wanted to come to the UK uh, fall as well so this is at a, at a, at a, at a long-term impact so the you know, the genie was let out of the bo- uh, bottle in the last few weeks of the campaign and unfortunately it's going to very difficult to put it back in. Had there been a remain
0: uh, vote uh, you would have been uh, partly responsible for drawing up plans for the next phase of regional aid from which mm-hmm. Wales could have benefited during the course of the referendum campaign and perhaps even more so in the aftermath of the result there were quite a lot of um, agonized uh, pieces written in newspapers like uh, the guardian uh, asking the question you know, why on earth did wales mm. in particular vote to leave the eu after it had received so much money and there were some people who were arguing that the Uh, regional aid money which uh, Wales had received had not been spent very well. What's your perspective on that?
1: Mm. Yeah, first of all, you're right. I think um, if we'd remained in the European Union, then I would have probably been given the job to write the, the, the rules for the next round of structural funds post-2020, which would have been a huge job, one of the biggest jobs in the in the European Parliament. That would have been important for, for Wales as well, but that's not uh, going to, to happen now. In terms of, of, of EU funds, what I always say there is Wales would be a lot worse off if we didn't have EU funds. OK, we are not prosperous now and we're still probably below 75% of the EU average in terms of GDP, but without those regional funds, we'd be even worse off, so it's been absolutely vital that we got those uh, funds in, in, in the past, and when you look across Wales, almost every piece of our major infrastructure, whether it's the edge of the valleys, roads, our town city centre developments are funded by the EU, when you look at the second campus in Swansea University £100 million of EU funds when you look at our training scheme, apprenticeship schemes mostly funded by the EU, the flagship job creation scheme from the, uh, the Welsh Government is Job Growth Wales and they say it's created 15,000 job opportunities, mainly for young people. They don't always say the money comes from the, from the EU, uh, but it does, the money does come from the EU. So there's all these examples of Wales has, 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 has benefited. So I think we'd be a lot worse off um, with, without it. We can always have a discussion how, how the money uh, uh, should be spent. But the process is, is this. Uh, at, at the, uh, once it's been agreed that, let's say, Wales gets the top tier of assistance, then Wales has to put together uh, an operational programme to say how it wants to spend... The money. That operation program then goes to the European Union and the EU has to, to agree that. And essentially, the Welsh operational program also has to fit into EU targets as well because yeah, the EU has targets, then the Welsh uh, projects have to fit into helping achieve those targets, you know, so it, it, the Welsh Government hasn't had a total clear hand in terms of it, what what, what do you wants to spend the, the money on. There is some flexibility there, yeah, but it has to fit into the uh, EU rules as, as, as well. So we can also have a discussion about whether the, the projects were right or not. I think things have improved. I think it's been said, you know, in the first round we spent uh, a lot of money on very, very small uh, projects, I and mean, Roger Morgan used to, to, to say this, and uh, I was leader of the council at the time and I, and I would see that uh, in, in this current round. I think it has to be more strategic uh, that I've been uh, much bigger uh, projects uh, funded which will have a bigger impact but of course that doesn't please ev- everybody because some of the, then the smaller organisations feel that they've been left out and they haven't got the, the money this time round so you're not going to please everybody. So we can always have a discussion on it but I think the, the overall message has to be Wales would have been a lot poorer if we hadn't received these various rounds of regional funds. Now, obviously, there
0: was a Leave vote and politics in uh, the UK has uh, been dominated since that Leave vote by Brexit and how it will be achieved. Um, What's your perspective on how the talks have gone?
1: The talks have gone as expected, really. Uh, We always knew once Article 50 was triggered that the EU held all, all the cards. And that's what's happened. We, we've already, uh, not fully but largely, agreed the divorce settlement, uh, and the and the UK has made concessions on all three. Uh, the three elements are the financial contributions, and the UK has agreed to pay all its financial contributions. And different estimates will be made: 50 billion, 200 billion. But the truth is, we we'll never know. Uh, These contributions will be paid bit by bit by bit over many, many years, whether it's paying for pensions or whether it's making contributions to the UK, uh, government central budget to to fight Russia. Uh, All these things are going to be paid year by year. So we never know the final figure, and it probably will be... Need need a hundred billion and fifty billion Uh, on the border in in Ireland. I know the UK has has, has fudged it a bit, but essentially, you know, I think it's going to have to uh, agree that uh, we stay in the customs union, the single market. Otherwise, a border goes back up between the north and south of Ireland. On citizens' rights, again, the UK has largely conceded most, but not all, of what the uh, EU wants. Uh, and the European Parliament is saying there's still more work to be done on that. We want to have further guarantees for uh, UK citizens living in the EU and the EU citizens uh, living in the in the UK, so more work to, to do that. So, so that, that's largely been done, um, and as I said, the UK has made all the concessions on that, except what the EU wants. The next stage will be uh, the so-called transition period, Uh, And it's hoped that that will be concluded by March uh, in 2018. And again, the UK will concede everything. If the UK wants a transition period, it's going to have to pay into the EU budget. It's going to have to accept all EU rules, and it'll have no say on those rules. To me, that doesn't seem a very, very good deal. Then by the end of the year, then, it's hoped that a a framework for a future relationship will be concluded. So not a, a trade agreement. That won't happen until we leave at the end of March 2019. So just a framework agreed towards the end of this year. In other words, it, it, it'll, it'll point in a direction to what the, the free trade agreement might look at. But nothing signed in terms of an agreement until after, after we leave. Uh, at, at the end of this year, probably early next year, then the, the ratification process will have to take uh, place in the member states. Uh, but also in the European Parliament, and I think sometimes people forget this: that the final vote will take place early in 2019 in the European Parliament. We effectively can veto the agreement between the UK and the EU, and I'm not certain the Parliament will agree to any agreement at this this time. Uh, the European Parliament, has a record, uh, of vetoing legislation just before a European election and there's a a European election in the middle of 2019, and we'll be voting on the UK-EU agreement just before that. And the European Parliament in the past has wanted to say, look at us, aren't we important? You can't ignore us. So in the past, they've always, just for an election, vetoed a serious piece of legislation. I'm not sure they will this time, but it's the potential to do that. The other possibility could be that the European Parliament could refer the deal to the European Court of Justice, to say, does this meet the terms of, of the treaty, which could delay things by a year or two? And then I don't know what's going to happen. Are we going to have elections in the UK? I doubt it, but you know, I don't know what will happen in those circumstances. So people shouldn't forget that, that uh, um, the final deal will be voted on by the European Parliament, and that's why Michel Barnier keeps the European Parliament in the loop all the way along these negotiations. So our, our key uh, MVP is meet with Barnier just before we start the negotiations with David Davis the morning of the negotiations and he would meet them the next day as well to debrief them on the negotiations we, and then in turn the MEPs get told what's going on so we as MEPs probably know a lot more what's going on than uh, let's say our, our MPs uh, in, in Westminster The UK
0: government has taken the view that it wants uh, the UK to leave both the uh, single market and the customs union if that were to happen what would the implications be for Wales? it's it's
1: it's hard to think about it, it it'll it'll be horrendous i, I honestly think it, it could uh, decimate our, our economy um because you know uh, all our companies rely on being able to export the, their goods uh, in the single market the other 27 member states tariff free and without without uh, too much paperwork and, and bureaucracy as, as well uh, so outside the uh, the single market uh, they would face tariffs and bureaucratic burdens, and I can't see them staying long, you know. I don't think there'll be uh, you know, something dramatic, but just imagine companies um, in Wales who are faced with the prospect of paying tariffs on their exports to the, to the rest of the European Union. What are they going to do? So they're okay at the moment, but then they have to make a big decision in a few years' time. Where are they going to make the next engine? where they're going to make the next wing where they're going to make their next product is it going to be in Wales and the UK where they know after making them they have to pay tariffs on the exports or are they going to move the production to somewhere else in the year where there will be no tariffs so that's uh, 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 pretty certain in terms of the, the, the customs union um, that's also important uh, for us uh, and it's particularly important when we talk about the, the border in, in, in Ireland for, for example because if there is no, no border in, in Ireland as they say isn't most of the goods going out to the UK or coming into the UK going to go through our border rather than come through the Welsh ports? You know, so that's going to have a huge impact on, on our Welsh ports there as well. So all these things are, are are important to Wales, and I just wonder sometimes whether some of the the, the Westminster politicians, the government in particular, are actually thinking about the the implications, uh, not just for, for the whole of the UK, but for the for, for the nations of the UK, particularly Wales as well, because we're going to be badly hit. And when you look at all the, the studies and articles uh, over the last few weeks, there's been lots of those who are saying that it's the poorest um, regions or parts of the UK will be the worst hit if we have a hard Brexit and we leave the European Union uh, and the single market and the customs union. So Wales will be uh, particularly badly at
0: And yet Theresa May has been uh, very clear in what she said that we must come out of the single market, we must come out of the customs union. Can you envisage circumstances where she might change her mind?
1: Uh the problem we've got at the moment is nobody knows which way she's, she's going to jump. I think she's been, been pulled in in all directions. The uh, uh, sensible advisers and cabinet members know leaving the market in a single union uh, would be a disaster for uh, our economy. She'd been pulled that way, but then she has the hard-line Brexiteers pulling her, pull her in the other direction say, you say, know, let's just walk away with, uh, with no uh, agreement whatsoever. And they'd be quite happy to top it, maybe under WTO rules, which, uh, again, it's, uh, isn't, uh, isn't easier. And I think the reason why they want to do that, and it's the reason why they've always wanted Brexit, is they want a different type of, of UK economy. Uh, they want a new model economy, one which is based on, on low-taxation, Uh, No workers' rights, no consumer rights, no environmental legislation. They want a a total unfettered free market. That's one of the reasons why they've always wanted to leave the European Union. And I think that's the, the, the main reason now why they're still, you know, at this stage, despite all the evidence are still arguing for a hard Brexit because they think this is the, the one-off opportunity you know, to create a total free market economy in the UK and they're going to go for it, whatever it takes. If they, if they have to destroy your economy, if they have to destroy the peace process in, in, in Northern Ireland, I don't think they really care. This, they see this as the opportunity to change the economic model in the UK.
0: You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton meets. Many people also find it um, difficult to understand the difference between being members of the single market and the customs union and the concept of a free trade agreement. Mm. They think that a free trade agreement is the same as being a member of those two bodies. uh, Just for the sake of people who are listening... Explain the difference.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, when we have the single market, we, we call it we call it membership of single market. I call it participating in the single mar- market, and, and that's the the full monty. So you, you you're in the single market, uh, you don't pay any uh, tariffs on on your exports, uh, no tariffs on the imports of your European from the European uh, Union. You have the same rules, the same uh, technical standards. Uh, you have the same uh, laws. You, you create a single market, and anything which deviates from the single market is is, is outlawed uh, by the European Union. Then you have a free trade agreement, uh, and under that you wouldn't have the the same laws. For example. Uh, you wouldn't always have the same technical standards uh, and not all goods would be covered. So, for um, example, the the UK government seems at this moment to be favouring uh, a similar free trade agreement uh, as the EU will have with Canada. But the the Canada agreement uh, excludes lots of things. It doesn't include services. We know 80% of the UK economy is made up of services. It doesn't include that. Uh, it, It excludes a lot of food products, Uh, as well. So it's not the full Monty. It only covers uh, certain uh, goods and the rest of those goods there would still be subject to uh, tariffs uh, for imports and exports.
0: So if we do not have the ability in terms of financial services to export those services to other European countries as we do at the moment, that's going to have quite an impact on the city of London isn't it and Mm. um, given the significance of the city of London for the whole of the British economy um, there's going to be a negative impact I think uh, across the whole of the UK
1: Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator, made it clear um, over the week- weekend in, in the speech that if you're outside the single market, uh, that means there'll be no passporting uh, rules allowed for uh, the UK financial services. In other words, uh, U- the UK financial services industry could not export its, its good, wh- whether it's it's uh, financial services, whether it's insurance policies, uh, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, and that would cause uh, a big problem because 80% of the economy does come from financial services. Uh, the City of London, we badly yet, but our financial services, elsewhere in the UK, you know, even in Wales we have, uh, have banks and insurance companies so that'll have, that have an impact there and of course if the if the economy is, is it in general that'll have, a, have an impact on the Treasury because there'll be less uh, tax uh, taken less money going into the Treasury uh, so they'll have less money to spend on schools and on hospitals and and other public services as well so it's, it's all going to have, a, have a, a knock-on effect uh, uh, if, if we leave the single market and uh, that's why I say that you know, the best option for us is is to stay in the European Union but the second best option has to be to stay in the single market in the customs union.
0: Over the next few months obviously we'll find out how the negotiations uh, pan out in relation to the future relationship. How do you think those are going to go?
1: Uh, I was asked a couple of weeks ago to put a percentage on these things and I think it's about 70% certain it'll be a softer Brexit in that we will stay in the single market and the, the customs union not just for transition but in the uh, in the long term because you know, it's, it's just economic madness not to do that. Uh, the Prime Minister has been pulled in the other direction so I think there's a 20% uh, chance the odd Brexiteers could win a persuader uh, you know, that it's, it's, this is not all, all, all worth it therefore we'll just walk away and there's a 10 percent chance we will stay in the the european union i think those are the percentages so it's only a guess but that's what i i believe are the right percentages and i think there's a 10 percent chance we could stay in because um people will change their minds the opinion polls already shifting in terms of uh, more people now support having a second referendum uh, more people now uh, support staying in the european union and as more and more people uh, see that the deal on offer from the EU is m- much worse than we got now, and it has to be the, the EU can't give us a, a, a good deal for, for many reasons. So, as people see the deal offered is worse, as they see the economy fall, and as, as it is already with the GDP figures falling, with inflation going up, with real wages falling, uh, with uh, construction uh, output uh, down, the manufacturing output down, um, with all these things happening, uh, eventually these will feed through to people's uh, pockets and I think at that time more and more people will uh, say you know, we should at least have a second uh, referendum, but more and more people also, I think, will stay, Will say, let's stay in, in the European Union. So there's, there's a chance uh, that will happen. My fear is that um, I think all those things will happen, uh, but it might happen after we've left the European Union, and it's, and it's too late now, uh, uh, too late then, and that's why I think it's only a 10% chance we will stay it But there's still a glimmer of hope. Uh, and I honestly believe the best option for the the UK is to stay in and that's why I I do hope there's there's a second vote I don't call it a second referendum I would say we, we need a second public vote on the final deal and I think that's fair legitimate and democratic to have that final vote because people voted to leave the European Union but they didn't know where they were going they didn't know the destination they were promised all sorts of things we'd be inside the single market we'd be outside the single market we'd be inside the customs union outside the customs union we have the Turkey model with the Canada model we have the Norway model so people weren't really told what a final destination was I think it's fair people get a, a, a vote on what the final destination might be.
0: But uh, you said that there's a 70% chance that we'll stay in the single market. Um, for that to happen, there would have to be a, a very significant U-turn uh, done by the UK government. Do you think they've got the stomach to do that?
1: The, the honest answer is I, I, I don't know because they say uh, contradictory things. My, my, my gut feeling is uh, the UK government, particularly Brexit Brexiteers, just want to get out of the European Union and they will... Make concession after concession to the EU just to get out. And at the end of the day, if it means to stay in, in the single market, customs union, they, they will accept that as well, just to, to get out. And I think the the real right wing hard Brexiteers then hope maybe sometime uh, in the future, after we leave, they can change things again. That will be outside the single market, outside, sorry, will be inside the single market, inside the customs <coughs> union, but sometime some future government. Uh, way ahead, could then change it and take us out of of the single market and customs union also. So I think their main aim is to leave the European uh, Union.
0: Your party, the Labour Party, hasn't been exactly coherent on these matters and uh, we regularly hear different members of the shadow cabinet saying contradictory things. Um, Do you think it's important that Labour should have a single line or uh, why do you think it is that uh, that they haven't got a, a, a fixed position?
1: I, I think on, on occasions we have been uh, contradicting uh, uh, each other, and in some ways I can understand that because I'm sure the Labour Party leadership will want to keep the remainers and the leavers uh, happy all, all at the same time. You know, but a, a time will come when we have to make a decision, and I think uh, although my party hasn't always been consistent, I think I've being consistent on this. I've always said we should have a have a vote on the final deal. Um, the best option is to stay in the European Union, the second best option is to stay in a single market and customs union, both in the transition period and in the long term. Uh, if we don't do that it, it's it's economic chaos. Uh, and that is going to do Labour Party voters and supporters any good either. If people companies are, are closing down, if people are losing their jobs, if house prices are are, are falling. Uh, if the GDP is falling, if the amount of money going to the Treasury uh, falls and people don't get public services uh, because of that, we don't get good health services because of that, that doesn't do Labour Party supporters any good at all. So uh, I want us to stay in, but the second best option has to be inside the single market, inside the customs union, and hopefully, sooner rather than later, I, th- I think my party will come to that uh, conclusion as well and what circumstances would there
0: have to be for there to be a second referendum
1: Uh, i've always said that um if it needs to be a groundswell of opinion from below it's very difficult i think uh for uh, senior politicians to argue for a second referendum. I wish they would, but I, I, I'm a realist. I don't think they, they're going to do that without this groundswell of opinion. And I think there could be a groundswell of opinion uh, as time goes on when people see the deal and offer is worse, as I said, when people see the economy is falling, that the change could happen then. But I think if the opinion polls show a consistent lead of more than 10% for Remain, I think at that stage, politicians particularly uh, those who are probably main, have to sit up and take notice and say, yeah, we've always said we've accepted the will of the people. The will of the people now is to stay in the European Union and we should give them the opportunity uh, to vote that way. There was an opinion poll um, a few days ago which showed a 10% lead uh, for Remain. Uh, That was one, but I think if it was a consistent lead of more than 10%, I think those are the circumstances where politicians should sit up and take notice and offer the people of the United Kingdom uh, a vote on the final deal.
0: Looking at the reaction in Brussels to the result of the referendum was it expected that the UK would vote to come out and since the result has that led to any uh, change so far as the attitude towards British MEPs has been concerned on the part of your colleagues there and Mm -hmm. the institutions generally Mm -hmm.
1: I don't think most members of the European Parliament expected there to be a, a, a leave vote. It was a bit of a shock. Uh, afterwards, there was some uh, anger, even in my own group, the socialist group. You know, I would hear some colleagues say across the floor, you know, if the Brits want to go, let them go, be better off without them. I think that changed, it, to, it turned into frustration then, I think. I think people were frustrated, we relieved them, but also became frustrated by the UK government you know, because the UK government e- even now doesn't know what it wants it's still arguing amongst itself whether you want a soft Brexit or an arg- hard Brexit so it's a lot of frustration there at, at the moment because I think they want to get on with it now they want to put Brexit behind them and get on with all the other issues which they feel they they have to deal with, whether it's Poland or Hungary, whether it's uh, migration or whether it's future integration in the European Union, because I think that's the way it's going to go uh, after we leave. So they are frustrated. They want to get on, uh, and they think Brexit is uh, is is slowing things down a bit in terms of individual uh, MEPs. Speaking personally, I think they've always been fine to me. And, in fact, now I've probably got more work on than I, than I uh, ever had. I, t- I like to think I work hard. I've, I've certainly got the, the best attendance record of any UK MEP in plenary. And I've done more reports, stroke piece of legislation, than any other UK MEP as well, by a long, long way. And I'm happy to show you the figures if you, if, if you want to see those. Um so I'm doing a lot of work. I've got some big reports on. I've just done one on the EU Youth Guarantee Scheme, which is very important. I just did the, uh, the first report uh, for the Regional Development Committee on the EU Budget post-2020, which I was particularly pleased with because I'm not probably not going to be there, but they entrusted me with the job of, uh, of writing a report what the next budget should be. Um, I'm currently doing the Parliament's own budget, uh, Uh, And also, I've just been given a report, um, which I'm pleased to get, and it's on EU funding in Northern Ireland. Very uh, topical, of course, at the moment. I've only just been given that, but I can uh, start working that after after Christmas now as well. So I've got loads of work on, uh, and I th- I think and I hope but uh, my colleagues do recognise I'm. Uh, I always work hard, uh, and I think they can trust me from from all parties to to do a, a, a good job. You know, so I'm going to keep on working until uh, until we leave. You know, things might change towards the end, but certainly uh, for the time being, I'm going to work as hard as I can. We spoke
0: earlier about the sometimes very bitter tone that had existed during the course of the referendum and indeed uh, afterwards. There are those on the Leave side who would uh, respond to uh, a lot of the points that you've been making during the course of this discussion by saying, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Um, He's not going to be a turkey who votes for Christmas. Um, He's got a nice life Uh, He goes over to Brussels, he goes over to Strasbourg, he's got a very good salary. Um, He's not going to be arguing to come out of the EU. How do you respond to that kind of um, statement?
1: I suppose they they, they would say that, wouldn't they? In in, in some ways, I think myself and other Remain MEPs um, have recognised this. And I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes we haven't uh, led the debate uh, since the, the, the referendum um, I think it's too easy for people t- to say that so uh, I've seen my role as of speaking to organisations and meetings where I've where been in- invited but also uh, for me to give the information out to those who want it whether it's my party colleagues uh, or other party uh, uh, um, members as well or uh, organisations or pro-Remain campaigns that's what, what I tend to uh, tend to do uh, because people w- uh, w- will say that. But uh, but I would also say as well, I think, that uh, going back to the start of a conversation, I've been pro-European all my life, certainly all my political life, certainly since I, I started university. You know, I, I, I know where the European Union is there. I know the benefits it brings. I know the dangers um, there would be if there wasn't a European uh, Union. So I think you know I have a long, long track record of, of arguing the case for the European Union. So what I'm saying now isn't new. It's something I've been saying for, for 40 years.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Derek Vaughan. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.